Father God, uh, thank you uh, once again for your, your love for us. Thank you that you reveal yourself wonderfully through your word. Um, and we just pray that you would soften our hearts uh, now by your spirit to uh, not only hear with our ears what, um, uh, what is preached from your word today, but we would hear with our hearts uh, deeply. We pray that you would transform us at the very deepest level of our being uh, to be pleasing to you. Uh, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we uh, do pray that you'll accomplish all that you intend for your mighty word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be with you uh, here at Victor. And great to be back in this venue again. So uh, lovely, lovely to see you all again. As Steve said, we started this series back in, I think it was October, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the second in the series. I've calculated that we'll finish 1 Peter by about 2028. So uh, just, uh, just hang in there. We'll get there eventually, all right? Well, no, well, no pray. We'll, uh, we'll dive in together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us and your son. Uh, we thank you for this wonderful, rich part of your word. We pray you'll refresh us in it as we consider it, as we set ourselves for this new year. So, Father, bless us as we look to you and your promises to us in Christ. Amen. So let me ask you, what's the best thing that's ever happened in your life? What's the most wonderful thing that you could point to as an event that's happened to you? You don't need to answer, but for me, it was becoming a Christian. No question, that was the hands-down, startling event for me. But what struck me at the time was that most of the people around me uh, didn't see it that way. They didn't think it was so wonderful. Uh, so I became a Christian when I was at university and I had a lot of mates there. And when I became a Christian and they discovered it, they didn't sort of rush up to me and say, way to go, Paul, you know, you are so lucky, you know, how come I can't be as lucky as you and become a Christian? What do I have to do? Like, it wasn't like that. Uh, it might have been for you, but certainly not for me. I didn't get the impression that these guys wanted to swap places. 
Uh, it's not that they didn't respect my choices. Uh, I think that they, they felt, you know, that was, if it was okay for me, that was fine. But I didn't get the idea that they wanted to become followers of Jesus. Back in October, we started 1 Peter. And what we did at that point was look at these opening verses of a letter that talks about the wonderful privilege of being Christian. But can I say, sometimes as a follower of Jesus, it's hard to keep remembering that when the people around you don't see it that way, isn't it? You know, like to think it's wonderful to be a follower of Jesus, but when you have family and friends who are close to you who don't identify the same way, it can be tough. So why isn't following Jesus more popular? Why not? I think uh, my friends saw becoming a, a Christian as sort of a restrictive thing, you know, entering into a system of rules, you know, do's and don'ts, uh, a life of deprivation now in the hope that you get payback by the time you got to heaven, sacrifice now, benefit later. I think that's the way they saw it. But can I say that when we turn to 1 Peter uh, we discover that nothing could be further from the truth. You know, it's not a, uh, uh, a loss now for gain later. It's actually sort of gain, gain as you work, work your way through it. Today we move to this second half of uh, the first chapter of 1 Peter. We start in verse 13. And it starts to talk about godly behaviour, how being a Christian should affect us. Uh, and so you might be tempted to think, well, here's the, the religious rulesy bit. This is what I miss out on if I'm going to become a follower of Jesus. But can I say it's a total misread of the Bible, it's a misread of the Christian life, and it's a misread of this part of God's word, right? totally. Being a Christian is not so much about following rules, it's more like belonging to a wonderful family. Uh, that's, that's really the character of it, and that comes through so strongly in this section. Let me just briefly, as we get into it, highlight some of the family language that comes up. Back at the start of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about the fact that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given new birth, um, born into a new family. Now, understand we haven't joined a political party or a sporting club where you pay subscriptions for privileges. Um, God isn't just a cosmic policeman out there somewhere. Now we're told, verse 2, he's a father. Or verse 17, we're to call on him as a father. Or in verse 8, we love Jesus as our brother, the one who died for us. Or verse 14, we're described as obedient children. You know, we're not slaves or servants or employees. We're born into a family with brothers and sisters, and it's a wonderful thing. In verse 22, we're told to love one another deeply from the heart. Now, we're not just a common interest group. You know, this is family. Or in chapter 2, verse 2, we're described again as newborn babies. We're not subcontracting rule keepers with a job to do. Uh, we are children in the family. Now, I get the fact that for all of us, our experience of family 
uh, will be very mixed. Uh, some of us will have wonderful memories uh, growing up in families, others not so good. Uh, some of us will have experienced families that got on extremely well together. Others of us will have had tension or struggles or disharmony or even breakdown of relationship. But I suspect all of us have a sense of what we want family to be like, you know, what we would desire. You know, a place where there's love and care and respect and affection and integrity. You know, a place where you want the very best for each other, where we feel supported when we grieve, uh, people we can celebrate with when we're rejoicing. And from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, what we do is we explore what it means to be part of the family of God, this privileged family that he's drawn us into. I want you to notice in verse 13, it starts off with uh, therefore. Uh, given God's amazing grace that we've seen in the first 12 verses of the chapter, uh, what we now discover is the implications of what follows. And what we have here essentially are, of this section, five family values. Uh, every family has, has values. You know, you grow up. I know Sue and I, one of the family values we had growing up with our kids, and we kept saying that people are more, more important than stuff. So whenever anything got broken in our family, especially if it was an accident, it didn't matter how precious it was or expensive it was, it was fairly minor by comparison with being unkind or unloving or harsh towards people in the family because people are much more important than stuff. So a family value that we just kept trying to iterate. Now, it tended to result in our kids being careless with stuff, but uh, there was a downside to it. But, but, but overall, there was a real... I think, upside when it came to relationships. So here are the five family values that you get in this section. And for those of you who are technically minded, like, you know, a Barry Webb or a studier of Greek, uh, there are five imperative verbs that operate like hooks in this section. Okay, so let me tell you what they are. Set your hope fully, verse 13. Be holy, verse 15. Live in reverent fear, verse 17. Love one another deeply, verse 22, and then crave pure spiritual milk in chapter 2, verse 2. So the section just has these hooks that the ideas hang off. So let's tuck into these, see how we go. First, set your hope fully on future grace. Verse 13, let me read it. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, if you're a Christian, you know you've already received grace. That is, you only become a Christian because of the great generosity and grace of God. But there's a future grace that's being spoken of here. Um, it's a grace that we'll experience when Jesus Christ is revealed, when he returns to wind up the history of our world. And that future grace is meant to shape our lives now. But I think when you live in Australia, this is pretty hard to appreciate because most people 
uh, you know, thinking about what you're having for lunch today is thinking into the future, you know, like it's a, we're a very immediate sort of world. And also we're much more like that, I think, because of the year we've come through. We've learned to put off planning because of COVID. You know, you sort of just realise that that's the case. But here, we're to set our hope on this future grace when Jesus returns. And that's meant to shape our lives right now. Now, how do you do that? Well, look what it says, verse 13. Have minds that are alert and fully sober. Now, literally, this is to um, gird up the loins of your mind. Right? That, that's what it's saying. And it's an ancient image. So if you think of, you know, the, uh, the ancient picture of guys running around in long caftans, you know, and if they wanted to hustle, right, they have to pull up the robes, the caftan, so they can make pace, you know. That's the sort of idea, you know, it's to um, roll up the shirt sleeves of your mind or, you know, boot up the computer of your brain. It's to have that sort of focus, if you like. And, and we know what that's like in life. Um, Sue and I have got a daughter-in-law, Elaine, who's just finished her professional medical studies, you know, to become a specialist. Now, she has gone through the usual schooling, done her six years med school, uh, you know, the undergraduate work, she's had to work for a while, then undertake further exams in a COVID year where they got postponed. You know, she was meant to finish them in May, but got the second part postponed until October or something, and then she did those, and in the meantime, she got married, she's had a baby, she's pregnant, expecting her second one, you know, like, it's been really straightforward, you know. It hasn't, you know, like, she has had to be extraordinarily disciplined in her focus to get through her exams to get to this sort of stage. If you can grab that idea, it's the same for anyone who calls himself a child of God. What you do is you study for heaven. See, what do you dream about? What's on your bucket list? You know, you're thinking, will the borders come down this year? Will we be able to travel internationally by 2022? Um, yeah, what occupies your imagination? Yeah, what if it happened uh, would cause you, consistent with your pe- personality, to go, yes! You know, that sort of, I would never do that. But you know what I mean? It's, um, what would actually excite you and get your blood sort of going? Friends, do you think about, do you dwell on the seismic change that will happen when Jesus returns? Does that occupy your imagination and shape your heart and your thinking for now? Because if it does, it completely changes what you care about. I remember... um, seeing an old account of a guy called Billy Sunday. He was an evangelist in America in the 1920s. And this story uh, says that he was preaching against uh, uh, those who were bootlegging at the time, uh, alcohol. It was in a prohibition era, and he was obviously for it and was against uh, the, the underhanded sale of alcohol. And what happened was... The mafia were pretty unhappy with his message 
uh, because they were the guys who were getting the money out of the bootlegging. So one of the mafia bosses sent a couple of his henchmen around to threaten uh, Billy Sunday and get him to pull back on his strong message. And they came around and they said, look, you don't stop preaching this way, telling people to stop drinking, uh, then what we're going to do is we're going to you know, give you some cement shoes and find a deep pond to put you in. You know, that was the sort of idea. And it's it said that Billy Sunday, in response to their threats, said, you're threatening me with heaven? <laughs> and do you get that that's exactly what's going on here? Set your minds on future grace so that it might shape your life. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said... We need to live as if Jesus died yesterday, uh, rose again this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. Right? Set your hope fully. Second uh, value will get faster as we go along. Right? Second value, be holy. comes up in verses 14 and 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Uh, Often I reckon when people think about holiness and they think about Christians, uh, they have this idea of rule-keeping wowsers. You know, people who think they're better than others because they go to church or don't use drugs or uh, don't dance while they're playing the poker machines or whatever it might be. You know, like it's, it's that sort of idea of we're better than you sort of idea. But it's interesting when you come to this passage, there are no examples... Uh, provided of what holiness looks like? Not, nothing at all. Not rules, but actually relationship. Look again in verse uh, 15 and 16. Just as he who called you is holy, then verse 16, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. Uh, kids imitate their parents. I remember... Uh, one time in the city church, uh, that's part of the network, I was, um, before church, wandering up and down the aisle of the church, just shaking hands with people. And I noticed when I was shaking hands with somebody that they started laughing, and I was looking over my shoulder, and they, looked, they were seeing that one of my kids, a three-year-old at the time, was following behind me, shaking hands with people and walking them to church in a very formal and official sort of way, you know? And let me say, it took me six months to train him to do that. <laughs> I, I didn't have to. He just saw me doing it, and he just did what I was doing. Be holy because I'm holy. But God's kids be like him. It's the contrast between going with the crowd, and we all know peer pressure to fit in, to want to be liked, to wear the same gear, to have the same hairstyle, uh, to run hard in the same sort of jobs, to... We all know the pressure that comes with that sort of lifestyle. But, friends, we don't run with the crowd. We imitate the character of our Holy Father. The third value, live in reverent fear. Verse 17. It's an interesting verse, this. Have a good look at it. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? 
a father who judges. A father who judges. As Sue and I both did law, and uh, I remember, and Sue remembers, we can't, can't remember if we just swapped stories here at this point, but I remember appearing before a magistrate for the first time to do a guilty plea. Simple thing, someone had committed some minor criminal offence, um, they were pleading guilty, all I needed to do was to jump up once the charge had been read, guilt had been admitted, and put in all the ameliorating factors that might reduce the penalty as a result. So the sort of thing you give first-year lawyers out, because it's straightforward, you've got a little speech, you give it, the judge passes the sentence. So first time I remember appearing before the magistrate to do this, I was terrified. You know, my knees were wobbling, you know, and I was... It was straightforward, but it was still nerve-wracking, you know, in front of a court. The thing was, the magistrate worked out it was my first time, and so the idea is, I jump up, read the thing, he passes the sentence, right? That's about it. But instead, at this point, I jumped up, I started reading out my script, and he kept interrupting and asking questions. And I remember thinking, you're not meant to do this, you know? Like, I'm meant to do my bit, you're meant to do your bit, you know? But he was just playing with me, you know, and having, having a bit of fun. A father who judges. The idea of God as a judge is very intimidating, really. It's meant to cause you to have a level of respect and awe. Except notice here, he is a father judge. Now, of course, if you've got no relationship with God, all you can have is a level of intimidation and fear. But if he is a father judge, if you know him as father, and you know his love and affection and care for you, then it changes everything. And that's why the security of the relationship is spelt out in more detail. Verse 18. It's not with with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now let me pick up on two ideas here. If you're a Christian, then... You've been redeemed from an empty way of life. Uh, If you don't have a relationship with God, then it's inevitable your life will be shaped by this world, what you can see, taste, touch and feel. Now, it's empty in the sense that it has no long-term future. It's not going anywhere. It can't possibly because it's limited to this world and therefore it's insubstantial. Then the second idea is, notice how God's children are ransomed for a high price. It says we redeem not with perishable stuff like gold. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, We've just come through, you know, sort of 12 strange months where there's been a significant drop-off of share prices and everything like that. The sort of recovery as the year went on. The thing with gold, though, is it's regarded as being one of those really stable, staple commodities. So during a sort of a depression where times are tough, what happens to gold? It goes up. So the year started with gold price at about $1,300 an ounce, and the year finished with gold, $2,000 an ounce. But this talks about gold being perishable, 
uh, but it's actually stable, foundational from this world's perspective. I looked up the expert on gold, Google, and uh, it said gold lasts a lifetime. In what sense? Perishable. It doesn't perish. Verse 18, it says perishable. Well, perishable in this sense. It's only useful for 70 or 80 years, and then its use is gone. That's the point. But notice how gold is contrasted with the blood of Jesus. It's described, verse 19, the blood of Jesus, as precious. Now, I also looked up an expert on blood, Google. Um, Actually, I googled the Red Cross. How long do you think they keep donated blood for? Refrigerated. How long do you reckon? Hmm? Three days? days? 42, did someone say? That sounds like someone who works for the Red Cross. Because they're right. 42 days, okay? Uh, So blood at that point can be preserved for that period of time. And then it goes off. It's perishable. It's the nature of blood. But Jesus' blood, we're told, has lasting impact it endures. See, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, his blood was shed for you, for your sins. So you could be forgiven. And Jesus' blood endures as the basis of your relationship with your heavenly Father for all eternity. Uh, it stands forever as the significant basis for relationship. And therefore, if Jesus blood dominates your identity and behaviour, you won't waste your time accumulating gold or careers or houses or, you know, experiencing sex or, you know, any number of things as your goal in life because you'll know those things are insubstantial and you know it because you've been bought with the imperishable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Your relationship with God dominates how you think. Fourth value, love one another deeply from the heart. Uh, You pick it up from verse 22 uh, through really to chapter 2, verse 1. You can't actually be loved by God and stand at a distance from the family that he has chosen uh, to be his. We're told, verse 22, we're to love deeply. Uh, the idea is to love at full stretch. It's the, the athlete striving for the finish line. That's the way we're to love as God's people. And that means we'll reject certain behaviours. You get that in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, we're to get rid of malice, uh, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. We, we don't say uh, one thing to someone's face and another behind their back. Now, we reject that sort of, that sort of pattern of behaviour. And positively, what does love look like? Well, chapter 2, verse 17. We're to love the family of believers, love one another, chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, love each other deeply, chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another uh, with a kiss of love in a non-COVID time. Okay. But you pick it up, that, that pattern of family love that's there. What does that look like? A couple of weeks ago, I took a funeral in town uh, for a family. Uh, 
their 40-year-old son had died. He actually died in Sydney, and it was pretty sad. He'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was about 20, and his life just kept progressively going off the rails. Uh, He got into drugs, violence, prison. The day he died, he'd just been released from prison, and he went to a known drug area of Sydney, brought some drugs, overdosed, died, 40 years of age. So he not only had the tragedy of his death, but the tragedy of a family who'd gone for 20-plus years of living uh, with that reality. And some of you may have experienced that. It's the sort of idea that's actually touched my extended family as well. Uh, So it was a hard uh, funeral. The reason the funeral was held in Adelaide was because this boy grew up at Trinity Church in the city. He heard the gospel and then particularly because of his schizophrenia, his life just sort of ran off course despite everything that people did for him. Uh, it, was, it was one of those sad funerals, you know. Afterwards, uh, his mum uh, wrote to me. Uh, a woman I'd known, she got converted at Trinity in the city with her husband. And the boys, the boy that died... And the other kids in the family, they all, they all got baptised on the same day, a family conversion. And she wrote to me and she said, bearing in mind she lives interstate at this point, but came to Adelaide for this funeral. She said, everyone at Trinity that we had dealings with could not have been more loving and caring. And I thought, that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? doesn't matter what's going on. Now, the people of God, they gather and they embrace and they care and they love. Friends, we don't get to choose our church family. God does that. And just as God has loved us uh, with a love we don't deserve, uh, we demonstrate that same love to one another as well. At full stretch, full stretch. Then we come to the final family tray, and this ever so briefly. You pick it up in chapter 2, verse 2. We're to crave pure spiritual milk. Now, verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. What on earth is spiritual milk? Strange sort of phrase, isn't it? Spiritual milk here is actually literally, in in the original language, it's it's milk of the word or it's wordy milk. Uh, And you you get that if you've read through the previous verses. So back in chapter 1, verse 23, Peter speaks of the imperishable word of God. Or in verse 24, he quotes from Isaiah 40. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So God's children, they love wordy milk. They love the milk of the word. Babies can't get enough of their mother's milk. Uh, We've got six grandchildren, six and under, 
So we've had recent experience watching this consistently. And we've got two due this year, actually, and we're going to watch it more, right? So it's that sort of stage. But babies are just like that. They just suck and suck and suck. If they don't get what they want, they just cry straight away. Right? That sort of idea. Can I ask you what your diet is like and what you crave? You know, if your wife takes away your Bible in the morning, do you cry? You know, do you, do you understand the, the sort of desperate desire to be in the scriptures, to hear God speak to your heart and your mind and shape your life? Can I ask what, what your diet's going to be like this year? Uh, will the word of the Lord be foundational in shaping your priorities and your thinking and your behaviours and your action? Let's long uh, for the word of God. I, I started um, this morning talking about whether you ever feel shortchanged by God. You know, people around you often, as a Christian, will see you've drawn the short straw. Do you ever feel that way? It can be hard to feel like you're privileged when no one sees it the way you see it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, this section concludes with these words. You have tasted that the Lord is good. You've tasted that the Lord is good. See, if you're a believer, you know that you're precious, loved. You've, you've been expensively purchased by the blood of Jesus to become a member of his family. And when you get that, uh, when your heart and mind are preoccupied with that reality... Of course it will affect everything you do. Of course it will. Queen Victoria, she became Queen of England in 1837 and it was when she was 18 years of age. She reigned for 63 years. It wasn't actually until she was 10 years old that she worked out that she was next in line for the crown. And the way she worked it out was she was in a private uh, tutoring lesson with a history master and a history master was taking her through a history book she came to a chart looked at the chart which was the succession tree of the royal family and worked out her name was there uh, apparently the name had been um, deleted up until this point in time but they stuck it in and she read it and she, she sort of paused and asked her tutor whether it was true that she would be the next queen of England and he confirmed it. Apparently, she then said this, then I will be good. Then I will be, very simple, then I will be good. And of course, what she was saying was, understanding what she'd inherited in this royal family line would logically have implications for the way in which she lived her life. Friends, chapter 2, verse 3, we have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, the people around us may not get it. They may even think we're a bit weird. That is possible. But we are supremely blessed to know the Lord and to be part of his family. We've been given this window into his wonderful and generous character. 
And so, of course, we'll have this deep desire to live for his glory and honour, to know him more, to imitate him and bring glory to his name in this world. We have tasted that the Lord is good. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we consider this your word, uh, we reflect on the, the wonderful privilege of being brought into your family. We know that's all grace, all mercy, all generosity. And Father, we, we do pray that you'll help us to keep remembering that, to have those truths locked away in our minds and hearts, especially when we face a world that doesn't see it that way, friends, family members who maybe think we're a bit out of kilter, uh, Father, we pray that those truths, as we read your word, will be sewn away deep in our lives and in the pattern and fabric of how we actually operate day by day. And Father, we pray that having tasted how good you are, uh, we will live consistently with that family image, those family values, with one another and with our face to the world. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.